Hi, this is Graham Sait, and welcome back to the Nutrition Farming Podcast. This is episode three of season two, and here we're going to focus on one single mineral. Even the human health segment will focus upon that same mineral. Now, this is a mineral that we find lacking in so many soil and leaf tests from around the world. It often involves a simple and expensive correction, and yet it's so often neglected. You're soon going to understand the price of that neglect, both in your crop and in your body. So this missing mineral is often thought of as kind of like a sidekick for calcium, but for those of you old enough to remember Tonto from the Lone Ranger, this particular version of an indispensable companion is not like the abused servant from that silly show. Boron is a standalone star in both plant and human nutrition, and you're about to discover the yield-enhancing, bone-keeping dynamics of this particular mineral. Now, I'm sitting here in my home office on the farm, and it's 1am in the morning, and I've been waiting patiently for several hours until the deafening roar of a chorus of crickets finally stopped. It stopped about 10 minutes ago. Uh, I thought I was going to miss out tonight, but let's see how I can deliver one of these presentations when I'm fairly tired and see if I can maintain my typical energy and passion. So let's begin by looking at where boron comes from and let's look at how it's stored in the soil. Now boron is the only non-metal trace mineral. It's a very commonly occurring mineral, often mined from dry salt lakes, most of which are found in California and Turkey. In the soil it's found in rocks and sand, you know, particles of that rock. It's found in soil solution as boric acid and it can be complexed and stabilised with humus. In fact, that's the main way it's stored in the soil. Boron is an anion, and the only storage system for anions, of course, is the humus colloid. Humus is, in effect, the boron storehouse. Now, it's important to understand that there is no synthetic boron. It's all naturally mined. And it's also good to know that there's virtually no difference between the technical grade, the stuff you pay a few dollars a kilo for in the supermarket, and the agricultural grade. Both of them have got a similar 99% plus purity, and there are no problem contaminants. So the boron content of borax, for example, is about 11.2% boron, while boric acid has about 17.5%. It can be further concentrated as sodium borate with about 21% boron, and that's the form that is the most soluble, and that's the form that's most often favoured by time-starved farmers. So boron, as I mentioned, is an anion, and it becomes much less available in alkaline soils. It's also easily leached from light soils, and soils with low organic matter will also suffer from boron deficiency. Tropical soils are notorious for boron leaching, but one of the major players in induced boron deficiency relates to our misuse of NPK fertilisers. Now, both nitrogen and potassium are capable of antagonising boron uptake when we mismanage them. Just to give you an example, an organic apple can contain 20 milligrams of boron, while a comparable crop drenched in potassium nitrate might have as little as one milligram of this mineral. So over 90% of the boron in the plant is found in the cell wall. It's at least as important as calcium and silica in terms of proactive pest management through the strengthening of that cell wall. This is actually a trio 
that may be to regenerative agriculture what the MPK trio is to the chemical extractive model. In fact, I'll talk a little later about other aspects of the interplay of calcium, boron and silica. But let's now look at the functions of boron. Now boron's notoriously lacking in the majority of farming soils and this is a deficiency that we really need to address. It's an essential mineral for optimum growth, for development, for yield and for crop quality. And the absolute minimum is one part per million on a soil test. Now most broadacre and pasture soils struggle to make 0.5 of a part per million of boron and there is a price to pay for this neglect. Let's look at the critically important roles of boron. Number one, boron is primarily involved in the structural and functional integrity of the cell wall and membrane. Boron deficiency, for example, dramatically inhibits root elongation due to impaired cell division and malfunctioning of that cell membrane. Many of us typically think of it as a mineral for improved pollination and seed set, but if you understand this role to root growth, it's just as important at the start of the season. This impaired cell division also leads to deformed flowers and fruit, and so the classic symptoms of boron deficiency include things like bumpy, misshapen fruit, things like hollow broccoli stems, for example. If you're shopping and you see a hollow broccoli stem on the shelf, don't touch that head of broccoli. Basically, that boron deficiency that drives that hollow is also linked to calcium deficiency. There is very little cell strength. There is consequently a great increase in the need for chemical intervention and it's pretty hard to wash those chemicals off the surface area of a head of broccoli. So don't buy that broccoli is a simple message. Uh, what else? Well, there's crosswise cracking of celery stalks. There's things like shot berries and grapes, internal and even external cork and apples. You see cracking on carrots. You see flower shedding in multiple varieties. Even holding on to the fruit can be a weakness in that stem that can be linked to both potassium and boron. If we talk about the reproductive link to boron, Boron has a really big impact on lengthening the pollen tube and that can really dramatically impact pollination and improve something called the fruit to flower ratio. A really good example of that is the big hot fruit of the moment, of course, the avocado tree. They will have huge numbers of flowers, but most of them simply do not become fruit. It's a really boron-hungry crop that can respond wonderfully to a combination of fertigated and foliar boron, and I do prefer both. And what you see is the fruit-to-flower ratio has increased, and with the current boom prices for this crop, your small boron investment can reap some really large rewards. Boron is a hugely important calcium synergist. The statement, calcium is the trucker of all minerals, and boron is the steering wheel, probably requires a little more explanation. A great example of that synergy relates to something called the middle lamella. So what is that? Well, it's the cement-like lining between adjacent cells. So you've got all the individual cells and the lining between them, this wall between them is called the middle lamella. So boron drives the formation of something called calcium pectate, that is hugely important in strengthening both the middle lamella 
and the actual cell walls for plant protection. And in the absence of this super-resistant material, invading fungi are much more able to use their enzymes to break down these barriers and feast upon the insides of the cell. Cell walls, in effect, become much more resistant to maceration by fungal pathogens when good levels of calcium pectate are present, and that's not possible in the absence of boron. Boron also sponsors something called iron fluxes, and that involves minerals crossing the cell membrane into and out of the cell. Research has demonstrated that these improved iron fluxes are really relevant to things like, particularly to calcium, to potassium and phosphorus. But boron also increases uptake and availability of other plant nutrients, and that includes nitrogen, zinc, iron, and copper. So continuing the roles of boron, let's have a look at legume crops. Now boron is really important for nitrogen fixation in both rhizobium and even actinomycetes, which of course there's a form of actinomycetes that can fix nitrogen and their capacity is limited by boron deficiency. If you're looking at the nodules on the roots of legumes and you squeeze them and there's no pinkish red inside, that's a classic sign of boron deficiency, and, and it's a signpost of poor nitrogen fixation. Boron also plays a pivotal role in nitrogen metabolism because it's required, just like molybdenum is, for the nitrate reductase enzyme that converts nitrate through to all-important protein. Remembering that the plant immune system is protein-driven, you've got to have to convert nitrates to protein, and boron and molybdenum are the keys here. Boron deficiency can also negatively impact the most important of all plant processes, which of course is photosynthesis. Here we see the disruption of the chloroplast membranes, and that messes with stomatal openings that are required to capture CO2 for photosynthesis, so it can have quite a major impact on photosynthesis. Boron also complexes with phenolic compounds to provide protection from free radicals and disease, and of course those phenolic compounds are wonderful antioxidants for human beings. In its absence, there's actually a damaging excess of certain phenols, and I'll discuss that later because it's quite an issue. Boron can have a really big impact on filling the seed head. When cereal grains like corn and wheat are lacking boron, the top of the seed head usually fails to fill. Maybe 15-20% is lost. Now, I'll never forget touring Australia many years back with the American consultant Gary Zimmer, and we were visiting a place called Kananara, up in the north of the country. And we walked into a huge field of table corn, and it was surrounded by beehives, lots of beehives. And we said, well, why so many bees? And he said, oh, I've been growing this crop for seven years, and I constantly have problems with pollination. So this year, I said, I'm going to fix it. But, you know, I'm still having problems. And we both looked at each other and said, that's a boron deficiency. He said, no, it's not. And we said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. I'll show you. The fertiliser bags, and you can see the analysis for a starter fertiliser. So he went and got some bags, and sure enough, there was some boron in the starter fertiliser. But he's dealing in low humus soils, there's no storehouse. The light soils, there's lots of irrigation from the Ord River. And by the time you need boron, at the business end of the season, most of it's leached. Well, we couldn't convince him, and I said, look, I'll shout you a leaf test, and we did. The leaf test came back, and he was screamingly boron deficient. Too late to do anything, but the realisation for me in that instance was how important is leaf testing? How important is to say, what do you want, crop? Oh, that's what you want. Okay, here it is. And had he chosen to spend $30 or $40 on a leaf test seven years back, 
with the scale of that and the size of that corn crop, it represented just under $2 million in lost yield over seven years for the sake of that $30 to $40 investment. You always test a crop before flowering. It can be worth its weight in gold almost. While too much potassium can shut down boron, and we all know that that's possible, the other side of the coin is that too little boron can actually limit the transport of potassium to the stomates, and that's where it's needed for stomatal opening. Now, sluggish stomata, because they're lacking potassium, can really impact respiration and hinder the uptake of CO2 for that all-important photosynthesis. So that's a big story. Let's have a bit of a look at boron and disease now. Now, the diseases most commonly linked to boron deficiency include the dreaded club root and brassicas. And when we say, okay, what's the root cause of that? Often it's really common to see overapplication of nitrogen, which negatively impacts the uptake of both calcium and boron. Both fusarium wilt and verticillium wilt in multiple species have been linked to a lack of boron powdery mildew can be related to boron deficiency, but it can also be linked to manganese, zinc and sulfur deficiency. So a combination of zinc sulfate, manganese sulfate with your boron folia will always be productive. Now combine 300 grams of soluble folic acid powder with these minerals to increase their uptake and to collate the manganese and zinc component. Rust has also been linked to boron shortage, but rust can also arise when copper and manganese are missing. Tobacco mosaic virus is a bit of a dog of a disease and it can have a boron link. It also can be linked to too much phosphorus because viruses need phosphate to replicate. Sulfur is really important to protect against this particular disease and I guess it's no accident that high P, which shuts down sulfur, is so strongly implicated in this destructive disease. I'll be back in a minute. We'll talk about 10 little-known tips about boron, and then we'll conclude this particular segment. Okay, so it's time for our human health segment for this month. And this time round, I've decided to kind of synchronize the boron story by considering the role of this mineral in terms of our health, happiness, and longevity. This mineral's got particular personal significance for me as it was kind of the basis of a wake-up call that has kind of driven my journey to a deeper understanding of many aspects of health and well-being. So here's what happened. Almost 20 years ago, I was touring Australia and New Zealand with the inspiring American consultants Gary Zimmer and Jerry Brunetti. We were delivering a series of two-day courses at the time called the 3UP Tour, Nutrition Farming Explained. I was pretty much the junior member of that trio, but we had We had some amazing times spreading the word around those two countries over two or three weeks. Now, just prior to boarding the plane in Adelaide to fly to Perth for the West Australian leg of the seminar tour, I called my ageing parents in New Zealand just to check they were okay. Mum suggested that I better have a chat with Dad as it might be the last time I heard his voice. I was understandably horrified at that suggestion, but it turned out that he was scheduled for an operation to remove his parathyroid gland the following week. See, the deal is that when this gland misfires, it messes up calcium management in the body, and that important essential sort of becomes a rogue mineral which calcifies cells and can cause things like hardening of the arteries. The gland is right next to the voice box, and there can sometimes be collateral damage during its removal. 
After my short chat with Dad, I boarded the plane and sitting next to Jerry, I told him the story. His immediate response was, I hope you've checked his boron levels. And then Jerry went on to explain that the parathyroid is boron dependent and that a deficiency will cause the symptoms my dad was suffering. So immediately upon arrival in Perth, I called home and and I had to literally beg my parents to postpone the operation. I even offered to pay for the blood and hair tests to check his boron status. The results came back and there was no measurable boron. We began supplementing and two months later, his parathyroid problem was sorted. It was a huge aha moment for me. It was recognition that the scalpel is so often used and abused when our modern medical machine has so little understanding of the root cause of problems. I mean, I've got doctor friends that tell me they did less than one hour of nutrition in a seven-year degree. How can they possibly be equipped to diagnose accurately when so many ailments are linked to what we put in our mouths? Anyway, that's when I began researching and sharing. And that component of my teaching has now become at least as popular as the soil story. Seems like the world's pretty hungry for answers that don't involve more and more medication and the problems that come with multiple drug therapy, realising, of course, that the third largest cause of death is drugs, prescription drugs. It's it's an insane scenario. It's a symptom of a symptom-treating bankrupt system. Okay, so you can see it's personal, so let's have a closer look at boron. It was timely in my tour of West Australia last week that I met with a wonderful apple grower called Jason Jarvis. Now, he's an organic producer, and in our conversations he suggested when I told him about preparing for my talk on boron, he said, you've got to read this article by a researcher called Walter Last called The Boron Conspiracy. Incidentally, Jason's a really good nutrition farmer. He gave me a couple of his apples, and I ate them on the way back to Perth just a few nights ago, and they were really something special. Now, I've read other articles previously by Walter Last, and I see him as a gifted writer and researcher with quite a rare capacity to share complex science stories in a kind of accessible form. I suggest that you check him out online. Anyway, a lot of what you're going to hear of in this segment represents a combination of my understanding of this mineral in concert with some of the insights from Walter's article. So, just like its role in plants, boron is all about cell wall integrity and the capacity of the cell membrane to facilitate messaging and nutrient uptake. This is a really big story when you recognise that you are literally a community of 10 trillion interrelated cells constantly communicating via that all-important cell membrane. It's not hard to figure that a more robust cell wall and a more responsive membrane are clearly of huge importance. And boron is a big player here, and it's so often neglected. Look, we check soil and leaf tests from over 50 countries, and this mineral is deficient in the vast majority of those tests. In this context, it's just a simple realisation that we are what we eat, and what we eat very often comes from boron-deficient soils. Boron, as either borax or boric acid, has really good antiseptic, antiviral, antifungal properties, and you can also use it topically to manage skin problems like athlete's foot and even psoriasis. And it's particularly effective as a douche in the management of thrush or as a high-dose supplement taken internally to kill things like candida. The minerals distributed throughout the body, but the highest concentrations in the parathyroid gland. In fact, boron's role in the functioning of this gland is comparable to the importance of iodine for your thyroid. 
In the absence of boron, the parathyroid becomes overactive, it releases too much parathyroid hormone, and that in turn releases calcium from your bones and from your teeth, and that can become a major root cause of things like osteoporosis, arthritis, and of course, tooth decay. Boron also impacts the metabolism of steroid hormones, particularly the sex hormones. Low testosterone in both men and women can be linked to boron deficiency. This has got obvious implications for loss of libido, both in men and women. Women have half the testosterone that men have. But more importantly than that, although at least as importantly, testosterone governs muscle integrity. And you've got one muscle you don't want to become flaccid and weak. That's the one that goes boomph, boomph, boomph every second of your life. Boron also increases the form of estrogen that's so important to postmenopausal women, and it has none of the cancer risks that have been so often linked to hormone replacement therapy. Boron also has a role in converting vitamin D to its active form to increase calcium uptake and calcium deposition into bones and teeth, rather than causing soft tissue to calcify, which is the other alternative. It turns out boron and magnesium may be just as important as calcium, and the osteoporosis plague, and yet both minerals are sadly neglected by ill-equipped medicos. Boron has been reported to improve memory and cognition, and that's due to improved membrane integrity in the brain cells and the associated enhanced messaging capacity. Now, there are many of us post-60 and younger who would well benefit from that particular support. There have been other beneficial effects, like things like improvements in heart problems, enhanced vision, and as I mentioned, psoriasis. There's a guy called Dr. Paul Gerhard Seeger, who's a celebrated German cancer researcher, who's demonstrated that cancer often commences with the deterioration of cell membranes. Now, the boron link to membrane functioning may well initiate tumour growth. In fact, in a 1998 study published in the Journal of Trace Elements and Medical Biology, researcher M. Benderdow and his colleagues reported that boron is a potent anti-osteoporotic, anti-inflammatory, hypolipemic, anticoagulant, and anti-neoplastic agent. Just so you know, hypolipemic means it lowers cholesterol, and anti-neoplastic means it can halt the growth of tumours, which are also called neoplasms. Now, at this point, you may well be thinking, oh my God, I can buy an inexpensive pack of borax from my local food store, and it might address my aching joints, my failing bones, my flagging brain, and my diminishing eyesight, while also protecting me from viruses and cancer. Now, that's a, a pretty impressive package and seems a bit like an exaggeration, but it just might be true. Now, I'm not a big fan of many of the current dirge of conspiracy theories, but it really does appear that this simple solution has been really soundly stomped upon by those with vested interests. If you read Walter's quite impressive article, you'll better understand where I'm coming from. But here's the essence of the story. Walter cites the experience of Dr. Rex Newnham. Now, he was or is a West Australian soil scientist whom developed arthritis in the 60s and linked his condition to the boron-depleted soils in his region. Rex reasoned that the role of boron relative to cell strength and calcium metabolism might also apply to human health. So he began supplementing. Using himself as a guinea pig, he began supplementing with 30 milligrams of boron per day in divided doses. 
Within three weeks, his pain, stiffness and swelling had completely subsided. Dr. Newnham then began marketing borax in a tablet form and was soon struggling to supply over 10,000 bottles a month. At that point, he approached a drug company to help him manufacture and distribute a supplement. And shortly thereafter, they lobbied the government to legislate against the use of supplemental boron in any form. His subsequent $1,000 fine rapidly halted his burgeoning business. However, this bloke was determined. He then set about legitimising the restorative potential of this mineral, and so he set out on a research path that produced several remarkable published papers. One of those involved his Royal Melbourne Hospital study in the mid-80s, where 70% of those arthritic patients treated with borax experienced marked improvement. In other studies, he successfully correlated soil levels of boron with the incidence of arthritis in that region. So native Fijians were compared to Indian immigrants on that island relative to joint issues. The Indians, whom largely consumed fertilised rice, suffered four times more arthritis than the natives consuming unfertilised root vegetables. So what's fertiliser got to do with it, you might well ask. Well, both nitrogen and potassium can impact the plant uptake of boron. Now they do that if they're oversupplied, if there's plenty of boron there, but in low boron scenarios, just standard additions of nitrogen and potassium can affect the uptake of boron. Dr. Newnham cited examples where areas like Carnarvon in West Australia reported arthritis levels of just 1%, when the national average in New Zealand, Australia and the UK is about 20%. Similarly, there's less than 1% arthritis in Israel where the daily boron intake of 5 milligrams to 8 milligrams is around four times that of most countries. Bone analysis studies have shown that the arthritic joints and adjoining bones had 50% less boron than healthy joints, so the arthritic joints half the boron. Similarly, the synovial fluid that lubricates joints and provides nutrients to the cartilage is always boron deficient in arthritic joints. It's been demonstrated, in fact, that bone fractures in both humans and animals heal in half the normal time when boron supplemented. In terms of arthritis, the benefits of boron appear to extend beyond osteoarthritis. They extend to things like rheumatoid arthritis, gouty arthritis, juvenile arthritis, and even, in some cases, lupus. Now, the response to boron supplementation usually takes about three months, and it involves three doses of three milligrams per day, so a total of nine milligrams of actual boron per day. And I'll explain a a sort of do-it-yourself strategy shortly for accurate borax supplementation. First, let's have a closer look at osteoporosis. It's apparent that one in three women over 50 suffer from this degenerative illness, and it impacts about one in 12 men in the same age group. The beneficial boron impact on bone density seems to be two-pronged. The bones are simply harder and more resilient in the presence of sufficient boron. And secondly, the boron-related boost in both estrogen and testosterone stimulates the growth of new bone. Osteoporosis is an unfortunate outcome of low estrogen levels following menopause. And it's less obvious, but still a serious problem for men as their testosterone levels more gradually decline in their later years. And one group of studies involving postmenopausal women and boron supplementation, the subjects increased blood levels of estrogen to the equivalent of those taking hormone replacement therapy, and blood levels of testosterone in that study doubled. 
Now, prostate cancer has now become the largest killer of men in some developed countries. There's been a, a medical preference for chemical castration of prostate patients, basically related to a belief that one form of testosterone can increase PSA counts and worsen the problem. However, research with Boron has demonstrated that elevated testosterone levels can actually help shrink prostate tumours and significantly reduce PSA levels. In these studies, the Boron-related increase in testosterone in older men also improved their memory and their cognition, and it was assumed that that enhanced membrane function of brain cells might have also been linked to that improvement. I, I'm, I'm reckoning you're probably reaching for the borax pack in the laundry by now, but wait, there's still more. In my home state of Queensland, a previous Premier decided to enforce the medication of the entire population by adding fluoride to our drinking water without ever asking our permission. Several European nations have ceased water fluoridisation, and some, like France, never did it in the first place. Fluoride is linked to bone degeneration, is linked to underactive thyroid, and to calcification of several things, including the pineal gland. So what's boron got to do with it? How can boron help here? Well, borax reacts with fluoride ions and forms boron fluorides, which are then excreted in the urine. I reckon I've well and truly made my case about the benefits of boron supplementation, but there's one more story. I wax lyrical about the importance of the calcium to magnesium ratio in the soil. Well, it's as important in our bodies as it is in our soils. Magnesium, in the human body, magnesium is largely found within our cells, as opposed to calcium. When our ideal calcium to magnesium ratio of 2 to 1 blows out, often due to widespread magnesium deficiency, calcium overwhelms the cell interior, and this causes calcification and multiple associated problems. Basically, excess calcium within the cell can damage the cell membrane and hinder movements of nutrients into the cell, and it can also affect the removal of waste. In fact, when the intracellular calcium level gets too high, the cell will often die. So, here we see the importance of boron as the regulator of cell membrane functions, especially in regard to movements of calcium and magnesium. With boron deficiency, too much calcium moves into the cell, while magnesium can't move inside to displace it. So ideally we should be looking at the supplementation of both magnesium and boron together because they're both required to address the problem. Magnesium should ideally be orally supplemented at about 600 milligrams per day and transdermal magnesiums, like my very popular product Magsorb, should be sprayed on the body or perhaps added to a bath. Okay, it's time to discuss how simply you can address your own boron deficiencies. Here's how you do it. Here's how you can... Make your own do-it-yourself boron supplementation. So you dissolve a rounded teaspoon of borax in one litre of filtered hot water. That becomes your concentrate and it will be sufficient for several weeks of supplementation. So you supplement at the rate of one teaspoon of that boron concentrate and a glass of water with meals. Now that's equivalent to three milligrams of boron. You can begin with one teaspoon per day and you can increase that to a total of three teaspoons of concentrate in three glasses of water if you're trying to address a problem like arthritis or osteoporosis, for example. That equates to nine milligrams of boron in total. That's three glasses of water a day with meals, a glass of breakfast, lunch and dinner, and each one of those contains a teaspoon of your pre-made concentrate. 
Now, borax typically has a, a slightly kind of soapy taste, but there's no taste at all when you just add one teaspoon to a full glass of water. So there's no problem. It's not difficult to do this thing. There's zero risk of overdosing at these rates. And despite the reputation of concentrated boron powder to kill plants, to kill ants, to kill cockroaches, it's important to realize that simple table salt will do the same thing in a concentrated form. In fact, sodium chloride kills rats at 3,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Now, it takes 100% more borax to achieve that same level of rodent mortality. That's like 6,000 milligrams per kilogram that becomes the lethal dose if we're talking rats. And just if we convert that to humans, that's about 400,000 milligrams for a 70 kilogram person. Now that's 4,400 times higher than the suggested 9 milligram daily dose. Similarly, boron's often been demonized in some countries because it's been linked to reproductive toxicity. And once again, this is very much a storm in a teacup. Check the studies for yourself and you'll see the dose rates involved in toxicity studies are ridiculous. They're astronomical and there are many, many common inputs that can be a problem if you dose at those rates. Well, that concludes our human health segment for this month. I really hope it's been of value. Feel free to just share that segment because it can. I think it could be a lot of help to a lot of people. Now, I'm just going to continue sipping my three milligram dose of borax before we return to the farming focus. Yeah, that's it. Do your thing, boron. Okay, so it's time for a little podcast humor for this month. Here's a good one. An unexpected side effect of the COVID crisis has been a huge growing interest in country towns. Houses and small acreages are selling like hotcakes as city people devastated by the confinement of lockdowns seek a tree change. The news networks have begun visiting rural areas and trying to find anything of local interest to feed this new hunger for farm stories amongst the city dwellers. Now, this is the text of a recent interview. I'll let you be the judge of whether we're dealing with a genuine dimwit or whether the farmer is taking the piss, as we call someone exploiting another's naivety in Australia. So the reporter, I'm here in the middle of rural Australia to talk about farm life with local farmer Peter Stringer. Peter, what is it about farm life that excites you? Well, I like my paddocks and I like my sheep. Well, the paddocks look pretty brown and dry at present, but I see you've got a couple of nice-looking sheep over there. Yep. The reporter, hoping for a little more eloquence, decides he'd better pursue the sheep story and the hope that it might spark a little more passion in the farmer. And what exactly do you feed the sheep, my good man? Well, I feed the white one a corn mix. Okay, okay. And what do you feed the black one? I feed the black one a corn mix as well. And tell me, Peter, where do you house the sheep? Well, the white one sleeps in the old barn. Okay, and where does the black one sleep? Well, she sleeps in the old barn as well. Well, it sounds like the sheep are well treated. Do they have names? Well, yeah, of course they do. Well, what are those names? Well, the white one is called Susan, and the black one? Well, she's called Susan as well. 
The reporter's getting pretty frustrated by this point. If both sheep eat exactly the same food, they sleep in the same place and they share the same name, why on earth do you consistently keep referring to them separately? Well, the white one belongs to me. Now I understand. Okay, who owns the black one then? Well, the black one also belongs to me. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've seen the hugely popular YouTube clip that that's, uh, covers this story, but this is the point where the reporter actually explodes. N- not not his whole body, just his fa- well, not his face, just his mouth to be exact. His his tongue just kind of detaches and bursts out of his mouth onto the ground, and it sort of wriggles around for a bit in the dust. It, it, it's really worth a watch. Okay, so at this point, I'd like to share 10 little-known tips and strategies relative to boron. Number one, we're going to talk about boron and microorganisms. Boron is really important for single-cell bacteria and algae, but much less significant for fungi and yeast. In fact, it can actually be fungicidal, and you should never be including boron with fungal-based brews. Bacteria... Yeah, bacterial brews, your do-it-yourself living fertilizers, you can include boron with bacterial-based brews, but I think again, both copper and boron, think again when you add them to fungal brews. Now, talking bacteria, there's one bacteria with a particularly strong requirement for boron, and that's called azotobacter. It's one of my favorites. It's the free-living nitrogen-fixing dynamo that gives you access to the 74,000 tons of nitrogen gas that hovers above every hectare. It gives you an inexpensive access to the free gift when you understand that you can brew azotobacter. We have products called BioN for the soil and BioPlex for the leaf, and, and I tend to brew both of those at the farm, and that makes it a very inexpensive source of nitrogen. But always I'll include some zinc, some molybdenum, that's two of the other minerals required by azotobacter. Zinc, molybdenum, and boron will be included with that application of nitrogen fixes on the leaf or in the soil. In seriously boron-deficient soils, and moving on to number two now, it's always a good idea to address this mineral both in the soil and via the leaf as a foliar. It's kind of a bit like an advanced magnesium deficiency in humans, which can reduce the uptake of magnesium through the gut lining, so oral supplementation is not particularly effective at that point. It's a side effect of magnesium deficiency. And that kind of makes transdermal magnesium a pretty essential supplementing strategy to address the master mineral, as I call magnesium. Well, there's a similar finding relative to boron in the soil and plants. In a 2010 study by Victoria Fernandez and some of her colleagues, we learned that advanced boron deficiency can actually limit absorption of boron through the leaves. That's why I always favour the inclusion of boron humate granules with a starter blend to ensure that you've sort of addressed the soil root and that in turn helps ensure that the foliar spray before flowering, which is part and parcel of all of our programs, that foliar spray will offer maximum benefit in terms of pollination, a better fruit to flower ratio and all the things we've talked about. Now, number three, boron has been shown to seriously increase the efficacy of fungicides, and that includes things like Benamil and Zyneb. But there's an important strategy, as there often is. You must use boric acid for this particular purpose rather 
than sodium borate, or what we call solubor in Australia. Now, the reason for this, all fungicides are more effective in acidic conditions. Sodium borate, or solubor, is alkaline, so what you're doing is kind of giving with one hand and then taking with another. It's a little like the humic fulvic story. Humic and fulvic acid both can increase the uptake of farm chemicals through a phenomenon called cell sensitization. They can increase that uptake by over 30%, but humic acid is actually soluble in alkaline conditions. It's actually very alkaline, and that's why the genuinely acidic fulvic acid should always be the humate of choice when combining with chemicals if you're trying to increase their efficacy. Now, boron can also impact the performance of natural fungicides. In a 1997 study by Duffy et al., biocontrol activity with trichoderma caningi, in this case, was seriously improved in the presence of adequate boron. Interestingly, in that same study, alkaline soils sponsored poor trichoderma performance, so high pH soils, trichoderma didn't work so well, and high phosphorus was also a limiting factor. Now, just thinking, I mean, you'd have to wonder about the burning capacity of DAP and MAP. What happens is that they ionize right beside the roots, and the trichoderma is subjected to the sizzling heat of basically raw phosphoric acid. And of course, we know that that seriously impacts. It's one of the major things that's knocked out our mycorrhizal fungi, and there's no reason that's not going to also impact trichoderma who live on the roots in a similar manner. And that's one of the reasons, as I've said before, that you always buffer acid phosphates with soluble humic acid granules. Now, boron deficiency can also impact other beneficial soil life because it can limit the plant exudates that the plant provides to stimulate specific soil life. As I said before, it's not just about pumping down some glucose to look after the life beneath your roots. Basically, you lace that glucose with specific nutrients that feed up the kind of organisms that you need. For example, if you're a banana plant, and I grow perhaps a thousand banana plants on the home farm, if you're a banana plant and you've got a particularly high need for manganese, which you do if you're a banana plant, then you combine those specific nutrients with your glucose root exudates to encourage proliferation of what are called manganese reducing organisms that makes manganese available to you the banana these nutrients are provided through root cell membranes and you now understand that those membranes can be seriously compromised during boron deficiency so another reason to look after our boron boron can also become toxic if you overdo it in fact you can even use it as a herbicide so the maximum rate of borax that can be broadcast over one hectare at one time is 15 kilograms per hectare in low calcium soils. However, you can boost that rate to as much as 25 kilograms per hectare if there's enough calcium present. I remember attending a lecture once by the wonderful American consultant Neil Kinsey, the author of Hands-On Agronomy, and he cited an early failure in his embryonic consulting career. He had recommended on Sortes recommendations a, a need for a whole bunch of lime and 25 kilograms of borax. Now the grower reasoned, well, I can't afford the lime this season, but I can pay for the boron. So he applied 25 kilograms of boron to his calcium deficient soils. And he wasn't too impressed when the excess boron application killed 
his entire corn crop. So you've got to be careful with boron. Now, you might have heard me talk before and say boron opens the trapdoor that moves sugars down to the roots and out, of course, and feeds the soil life. It allows the proceeds of the day's photosynthesis to be distributed through the plant. And as we said, 30% of that sugar is gifted to the soil life in return for all the things that it gives back. So in that context, the soil life pays quite a price for a boron deficiency because basically you stop feeding it. Now you can pick this up. It's important that you do pick it up. A refractometer can pick up this problem Basically, when the bricks in the late afternoon is the same as the bricks levels in the morning, then that means that the translocation has stopped, the trapdoor hasn't opened, the sugars haven't been moved, and the plant is effectively constipated. Here's a bit more of an explanation of that phenomenon for those of you who like to understand how things work. That's me. I suppose it's a bit nerdy, but I always like to know how does this work. And so let's just explain it a little more. Boron deficiency impacts photosynthesis. And that reduced activity decreases the carbohydrate accumulation in the petioles. So studies have shown that this petiole deficiency leads to an accumulation of carbohydrates in the leaf because the glucose can no longer be transported to the other parts of the plant. The trapdoor is closed, effectively. And finally, low boron directly impacts the medicinal value of the food you're producing. Remember, Hippocrates' statement, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. And you're literally the pharmacist with an F when you're producing food. Boron deficiency sponsors lower levels of two really important antioxidants. Some would say the most important antioxidant. And we're talking about vitamin C. And we're talking about glutathione, perhaps the most important single nutrient for your liver. And this is due to a drain on both of these antioxidants through constantly neutralizing the excess free radicals that are created by boron deficiency. So this, of course, also creates a less resilient plant because vitamin C and glutathione are used to fight the fight in terms of plant immunology. And that, of course, then means a greater need for chemical intervention. So once again, I'll explain how this phenomenon works. Boron deficient plants accumulate unnaturally high levels of two particular phenolic compounds, which are called caffeic and chlorogenic acid. So this accumulation happens in the upper leaves because deficiency symptoms of immobile minerals like boron and calcium always show up in the younger leaves first. What happens is that excess caffeic acid that accumulates in those young leaves kills the growing tips and can clog conducting tissues. And that imbalance also sponsors the overproduction. So the plant overreacts with these two materials that usually are good and have now become toxic. And so it overproduces something called polyphenol oxidase. And you can hear the word oxidase. That, in effect, oxidizes those antioxidants. And when oxidized, the young leaves become discolored and they become brittle. And basically, this eventually leads to the dieback that you might know is a common feature of boron deficiency, particularly in things like grapevines. So vitamin C and glutathione arrive to try and neutralize these free radical fires generated basically by a boron-sponsored imbalance, and hence they're depleted in the produce that you're producing. It's important actually to realize that the medicinal value of food is determined by how that food was produced. In one UK study of vitamin C levels, 
and fresh produce, they actually found a significant percentage of oranges tested had no vitamin C at all. In the instance, if you shut down boron with excess N and K, which is quite common in citrus, then vitamin C can be seriously depleted. I mean, you think, well, I'm having my glass of orange juice, I'm getting my vitamin C for the day. That may or may not be the case, depending upon how that food was grown. The blueberries you're having for your breakfast normally contain very high levels of anthocyanins, but the ORAC score, which is particularly high, 2600, that's a measure of antioxidant value, the ORAC score of berries, and blueberries particularly, can vary between 500 and 3,000. 2,600 is the average, uh, and that depends on how that food was grown. So that's what nutrition farming is all about. So let's conclude this episode three of series two. But there's a couple of things that I've just realized I haven't discussed. One of them was I promised to talk about the combination of calcium, silica and boron, that trio that I likened to the NPK trio, in the conventional model. And what I didn't talk about was the use of boron to stimulate the release of silica. This comes from Hugh Lovell, the wonderful Hugh Lovell, who unfortunately and sadly is no longer with us, but has left a great legacy. Uh, Hugh lived with me for several months and shared with me this concept, and I tested it on the research farms and in the field over many years, and there's no doubt of its relevance. And what we're talking about is an application of boron to the soil, fertigated or foliar sprayed to the soil, not the leaf, in late winter. And what that does effectively is to solubilise, I mean there's huge amounts of silica in soluble form or unavailable form, and some of that is solubilised by boron at that specific time. And that silica then enters the plant and basically phloem and xylem are made from silica. They are the pathways into the plant. So then we see minerals, immobile minerals like calcium and boron, and boron you've just applied, but calcium particularly, that can move into that plant. The slug mineral calcium can slide its way into that plant on the new superhighways made from silica, and you've got calcium there and boron there for the all-important cell division and cell elongation that's required for that spring flush. So that's a pretty cool concept. Put on some boron late winter, increase silica, increase calcium uptake, and of course uptake a bit more of the boron that you just put on, and you've got the trio that determines membrane integrity and cell wall strength, which in turn, of course, is the key to resilience and productivity in your crop. So that's a pretty cool concept. Now, I touched upon the fact that I favour a soil application in conjunction with a foliar application of boron. And I mentioned soluble humate granules. That's an NTS product that's very popular around the world. And basically, in Broadacre, we suggest if you're using, say, a combination of DAP and MAP with some guano granules, for example, which is a great combination, you've got soluble and slow release together, and we always include 5%, usually 5 kilos per hectare of soluble humate granules, which are humic acid, of course, well, you can substitute that five kilos of soluble humate granules with five kilos of stabilized boron humates. And, you know, of course, boron is complexed within that humic acid, but there's sufficient, there's, in fact, there's a huge amount of spare room in that um, structure to still create all the things you're trying to create with that inclusion. So you can buffer the burning of the phosphoric acid in the DAP. 
you can stimulate the mycorrhizal fungi rather than destroy them with the humic acid stimulant, the most powerful fungal stimulant. And of course, you can create that phosphate humate with the boron, that stabilized form of phosphate that, of course, won't immediately start locking up with calcium and iron and aluminium in more acidic soils. So it's a really, really good and sound combination. And finally, I just want to talk to you about my upcoming course, the five-day certificate in nutrition farming. Now, it's really rare for there to be any free seats. It's always sold out. But of course, it's COVID times and we didn't advertise it until just a couple of weeks back. And we're talking about March the 15th to the 19th inclusive and there's still seven or eight seats available. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, I promise you, you'll enjoy uh, the experience of this course. I mean, we've trained over 40,000 farmers and consultants globally on four continents over the past 20 years with this course, which involves, of course, myself and my wonderful agronomy team. And, you know, the most common two words described for people attending the course is life-changing. It's, it's a lot of fun. The whole team gets into it. We have something called the Big Night Out at a, a local boutique brewery and have a really nice meal and drink some wines produced with nutrition farming principles. We have you know quizzes and exams and team building events and, and it's just a really memorable experience. And there's an opportunity for seats if you feel like it. So there's only a week to go give us a call and book in if you're interested in coming. So that brings to an end this episode three, season two, our special on boron. It's been great fun. It's been uh, late in the night and I've still maintained my my passion and enthusiasm. And I'm happy about that. Until four weeks time, I haven't even thought about uh, what I'm going to talk about at that point, but I promise it'll be both entertaining and inspirational or I'll try to make it that have a great month on the farm and I look forward to chatting again see ya